I am not going to pray because that song was largely a prayer, wasn't it? So I'm just going to say, Amen. Right. Uh, for those of you who are visiting this morning, my name is David. I'm the assistant pastor here. And let me just say, welcome. It's good to have you with us. And although I've said it before and nobody has yet to come and speak to me, do come and say hello after the service. <laughs> right. Uh, let me start with a question. Who wants to change their life? Who wants to know how to change their life? Or maybe another question. Who wants to know what the important things in life are? Or maybe who wants to know where they should put their effort in? Now these are not the primary questions Peter has in mind, but as we look into what he's saying this morning, we'll discover, and I hope, that what he does speak, uh, what he does say, speaks right to these questions. We're starting a new series in the book of 2 Peter. We're going to spend four weeks here together. We're seeking to hear what God has to say to us. And if we could locate uh, a big aim for writing this letter, it would be that Peter wants his readers to stay safe. So I'd like to change the heading, the title that we have from A Day Is Coming uh, to Stay Safe. This is because Peter knows the time. It may sound quite simple to us who have been Christians for a while, but Peter knows we need reminding that the end hasn't yet come. Christians have not received their greatest prize yet. We live in the period between the first and second coming of Jesus. And this very fact means that there's a journey to travel. There's a path to walk for you, believer. And, this, and on this journey, there are dangers. There are dangers within the church. We'll see that in week three. There are dangers from outside the church. We'll see that in week four. And the danger Peter sees for us is the danger of stumbling and falling on the journey. It's the danger of turning away from righteousness. Where do we see this? Well, we see it first at the start of the letter in chapter 1, which we've read this morning, verse 10 and 11. Peter says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. That's the danger. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That's the future. Entry. We see it in the middle of the letter in 2, verse 20 and 21. Peter says, if they, that is these false teachers, have, have, note, escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, note that that's just exactly the same phrase that he's used to describe the believers themselves this morning. He says, if they have escaped and are again entangled in it, that is the corruption, and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. Peter sees the danger because he says there's unbelievers, the false teachers, have turned away. 
That's the danger. And we see it at the end of the letter in chapter 3, verses 17. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. Peter has written this letter to us to remind us of a few things so that we would stay safe on our Christian pilgrimage. That's what we're doing. Now, I really think we need to see this bigger picture if we are to appreciate what Peter's going to communicate to us. We need this background of knowing the time, knowing where we are on a journey, and knowing that there are dangers, because that's the background into which Peter speaks. And perhaps in our culture, generally, this is a bit of a foreign idea, and so we don't find it easy to feel this way. Generally speaking, the idea of history moving somewhere to a definite end, the idea of this present order of things coming to an end, uh, the idea of a God who will call all people to account. But this is the most real story of the world on offer today. This is the real story of the world that we live in. And so it's within this story that Peter's main idea can be heard. And straight away, we're getting answers to our questions that we asked earlier, aren't we? What are the really important things in life? Knowing the times. Knowing the story. It really can't get more serious than knowing where you are in God's big plan. That's his framework. What's his main point? To get to that, let's zoom straight in to verse 5. Verse 5 contains the, the main, main or only imperative. That's the do word uh, in our section that we've read this morning. And this is what it says. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. And then the the force, the force of that imperative carries through to the end of verse 7. Now, I feel like the best word to use for this is exhortation. I think it's because it's stronger than a suggestion, uh, stronger than an instruction, but more encouraging than a command. I feel that, I imagine Peter's tone is not a, Make every effort, but a make every effort. Make every effort. And so let's hear this this exhortation in that way. Now, right here, Christian, you've got an instruction from the Bible. Look how clear it is. If you wanted to take away something this morning, here it is. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and make every effort to add to your goodness knowledge and make every effort to add to your knowledge self-control and make every effort to add to your self-control perseverance and make every effort to add to your perseverance godliness and make every effort to add to your godliness mutual affection and make every effort to add to your mutual affection love make every effort to add these things to your faith There you go. See you later. Or, to put it in a visual way, build a strong castle of virtue 
around your faith and make the outer layer out of love. Because if you do this, you will be kept safe during the pilgrimage of the Christian life and you won't stumble on the way and heaven's gates will be wide open for you when you get there. Or in other words, stay safe by making every effort to grow in virtue. That's the big idea for this portion this morning. Now, before we move any further, we should press pause in order to clarify something. There are various reasons why we can be wary of such strong language when speaking about how Christians should live. Does anybody else feel that? One reason is that as Christians, we're very aware that our acceptance before God and our right to belong to his future heaven are not based on how good our behavior is, is it? And so we can easily be nervous about the call to change our behavior because we know how quickly we can fall back into ways of thinking that grade our acceptance with God and our confidence in the future in terms of how well we've performed that day. That may have even been this morning. We haven't woken up with much virtue or goodness or self-control. And we might already feel like a failure and I'm loading up the burdens. And so we're nervous about hearing Peter charging us with such strong language to put in every effort. In one sense, this impulse is right, isn't it? Our acceptance with God and our confidence in the future is not grounded in our performance. Jesus and his merit alone gives us these blessings. We can't sound that note clearer or loud enough. But we need to make room in our thinking for language like Peter's because the truth is that God's work in our lives actually moves us toward a virtuous life and this is a truth spread right across the New Testament scriptures. All the authors say the same thing. Just a couple of examples. James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Couldn't be clearer. Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and feels nice is like the wise man. No, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Change the way you live is an integral part of God's plan for your life. And so Peter here is fully in line with the rest of Scripture when he exhorts us to make every effort in the Christian life. I'll say a very quick word to you if you're visiting and you're exploring the Christian faith. If this doesn't seem like an issue to you, I'd love to speak to you more. If this doesn't seem, if you can't see the tension between the radical nature of God's free grace and our effort, I'd love to talk to you more. Now, back on track. Believers, we know we can't just leave it there, can we? And one of the reasons we can't just leave it there with the exhortation is because of those four little words at the beginning of verse 5, which you should have noted. Right? What does it say at the beginning of verse 5? Four little words, for this very reason. What reason? 
And that is the next question. But before we go there, I'm now going to give you a quick view of where we're going to go for the rest of our time. We'll take three steps. The first step will be focusing on what prompts the exhortation. So what is the reason? Second step is what is the exhortation in more detail? What precisely is Peter exhorting us to do? And thirdly, what are the benefits of putting this exhortation into practice? Why does Peter see this as a good idea? You get that? So what prompts the exhortation? What is the exhortation? And what are the benefits of the exhortation? So here we go. First of all, that's right. Did anybody notice? First time I've got slides. <laughs> all right. Okay. So Peter starts out his letter with uh, the customary greeting, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus. He says who he is and who the recipients are to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. That's you, believer. A faith as precious as the apostles. And then he says, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. It's a desire for the Christians to grow. May you grow, Christian. And then he dives straight into what God has done for us and specifically what God has given us. This is now verse 3. Look what he says. His divine power has given us, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Now, I realise that that's a mouthful. <laughs> So let's read it again slowly. It's a dense sentence. Okay, here we go. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. How did he do that? Through our knowledge of him who called us, and he called us by his own glory and goodness. So what is the everything we need for a godly life? I think it's contained in the knowledge of him. How has he given us everything we need for a godly life? He's given it through our knowledge of him. So reading it backwards might help. Okay, so we do it backwards, something like this. By God's own power and goodness, God has made himself known to us and through this knowledge of him, all things for a godly life have been given to us. Upon recognising, paraphrasing, what God has done for you through Jesus and accepting that work for yourself, you've entered into a space in which everything for a godly life has been given to you. And then he says, that's the first thing, then he says, and by these... And I take that by these to mean by his glory and goodness. <clears throat> by this glory and goodness, he has also given you very great and precious promises. Promises about who God will be for you. Promises about what God will do for you. And so I think this is the first reason he gives. Because of God's grace toward you in what he has given you. Namely, knowledge of himself and amazing promises. That's the first reason that prompts the exhortation. But he doesn't leave it just there. Peter says these promises have been given to us. Note, verse 4, 
so that through them we might become partakers in the divine nature. Now, this is not saying that the promises, uh, that through the promises we become partakers uh, in nature in terms of God's attributes, omniscient, for example, but in terms of God's character. We become partakers of God and God's nature in terms of his virtue and goodness. You see, there's a purpose in the promises. And this is the same thing with God giving us knowledge of himself in verse 3. He says, through knowledge of himself, God has given us everything for a godly life. You see? He's given us everything, not just full stop, but everything for a godly life. So there's a purpose in the giving. That's the second reason. And finally, he says that all of this has happened to you after escaping the corruption that's in the world. And it's a corruption that's still in the world because of evil desires. That's what he says at the end of verse 4. Having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So for this compound reason, what God has given you, his purpose in giving you, and because of the world you're in, make every effort to grow in virtue. A few reflections at this point. Reflection one. The priorities of change. The priorities of change. I asked the question at the start of the sermon, who wants to know what the really important things are? And here we get some of the answer. Really important thing for you is to grow in God-like character. God's purpose for you is to grow in godliness. That's a really important thing for your life. Perhaps you're like me and find yourself with the most annoying reset button that seems to get pushed in your sleep every night and you wake up <laughs> being more concerned about everything else in your life except your godliness. Anybody else? Is that just me? <laughs> I see evidence of this in my, in my life by way of my prayer requests. What a conscious effort it is to make my prayer requests about how I can change, not my circumstance can change. It's not to discredit these requests or desires, but to ask ourselves, what has God given us everything for? Peter tells us in these verses that it's to grow in a godly life. Second reflection is the sufficiency of the resources for this end. Peter says that for this purpose of growing in a godly life, God has given us some helpful tips. No, everything we need through our knowledge of him. Wow. Do we really believe Peter's statement? Not my statement, note. And this comes back to our question of change again, doesn't it? If the first reflection was to consider our goals in changing, this reflection is to consider our source in changing. 
It may be that we feel like the resources in the gospel are insufficient because our orientation is wrong. But with the correct orientation, Peter says the resources are there. Are there other places we go in order to bring about the changes we want? Do we need to turn from our dependence on those other sources for change and press into the resources of the gospel more? Jesus is sufficient, says Peter. Third reflection is that this effort is applied through knowledge and promises. It's not just effort generally, it's effort through knowledge and promises. Right? See what he says in verse 4. Through these, he has given us very great and precious promises. Sorry, through these, the glory and virtue, so that through them, that is the promises, you might become partakers. Partakers through the promises. And Peter gives an example of this very thing in chapter 3 when he reminds the believers about God's coming judgment on the present world and his promise of a new heaven and earth, as we'll read in chapter 3. And then he goes on to say, therefore, what kind of lives ought you live in holiness and godliness knowing that this is the future outcome of the world. Or in other words, here's the promise, this is how you live in light of the promise. This can be applied in numerous ways to numerous promises. I was just thinking the other day about how the wicked appear to prosper in so many ways. In many ways, life looks fun for them now. But Psalm 37 tells me not to fret about the evildoer because on the one hand, his day is coming and he will perish like grass. And on the other hand, it tells me that those who delight themselves in God and trust in him will one day be established and flourished and saved. And so the promise drives me away from envy and from envy away from depression and it drives me into compassion and prayer, and a renewed resolve to trust in God and hope in his promises. Effort through the promises. So that's what prompts the exhortation. Second, the exhortation itself. So let's think a little bit more deeply about what he actually calls us to do. The first thing he says is add to your faith goodness. What we're going to do is we're going to work through each of these words. We'll have a little definition and then we'll have a little idea of how we might practically apply this. So goodness, it's, it's kind of moral excellence or excellence of character. Uh, praiseworthy character. It can be said of us that we are to, um, we've been saved to proclaim the the goodnesses of God in 1 Peter. It's behaviour and, and, and speech and uh, uh, these things in a manner, doing them and living in a way that can be said, that is excellent. Uh, as an example of how this might cash out is, is perhaps just to think for ourselves how, well, I mean, this is how I, uh, I'm thinking about it, is how do I conduct myself? 
how often do I think about how I'm conducting myself and am I living in a way that's respectful, aware, considerate, praiseworthy? Do I think about what's appropriate and what would be excellent behaviour? Second thing is, he says, add to your goodness knowledge. Now, this may include general knowledge, like knowledge of plants, but more importantly, it focuses on knowledge of Jesus and perhaps knowledge, uh, and perhaps also, also wisdom and discernment, which enables us to live a virtuous life for Jesus. Now, putting this into practice might mean reading our Bibles. It might mean reading a book about Christianity. It might mean talking to other Christians about Jesus-related things more. And it might mean growing in general knowledge as well. Next, he says, add to your knowledge self-control. Now, this word for self-control here is often contrasted with uh, desire. You either give in to desire or you control it. So to exercise self-control would be to restrain oneself. To be clear, it doesn't equal refrain entirely from desire. It means control the desires. You have various desires. Food, sex, comfort, sleep. Control them and bring them under Christ's reign. Now here we have an area in which most of us and most of the time we alone will have to diagnose ourselves in this respect. You will need to agree with God whether your sexual appetite is under control or not. For singles that might be easier, for marrieds you still need to do it. You need to decide before God whether your appetite for food is under your control or not. You need to decide with God whether your appetite for Netflix is under your control or not. Peter's calling us to grow in self-control. Then he says, add to your self-control perseverance. Perseverance is a common quality encouraged in the Christian life. And perhaps the older among us will know it better. But perseverance doesn't happen at the end of a long life, does it? Perseverance is what gets you to the end of a long life. Perseverance happens today, day by day, moment by moment, from the beginning of the Christian life. And it's a word that implies challenge and difficulty. That's a normal part of the Christian life. Persevere, Christian. Persevere. Perhaps it's perseverance in coming to church. Perhaps it's perseverance right now. Not a funny joke. <laughs> Perhaps it's perseverance in bearing with certain people. Perhaps it's perseverance in hope as you wait for God's promise of a new body. Perhaps it's perseverance in putting the passions of the flesh to death 
as you wait for all your deepest longings to be completely satisfied in God's ways in glorified bodies. Persevere, Christian. Make every effort to grow in perseverance. And then he says, add to perseverance godliness. This term speaks of respect for God's will and moral way of life. Having an appropriate reverence and devotion for who God is. Godliness. Putting this into practice might look like obedience to God's will for our money or our time out of reverence for who God is. And then he says, add to your godliness mutual affection. Two more to go. Let's keep going. Last two. Mutual affection and then love. What does he mean by mutual affection? It could, be, it could be family affection. That could be another way of describing it. And in the context of the church, it's particularly about care and affection for the family of God. Brotherhood or sisterhood might conjure up the right ideas. An example of this would look like treating this church like your very close family. The person sat next to you. The person sat in front of you. Treating them like they they were your very family. My friend, I have a friend in Australia, uh, he's one of three boys and he's got a very close relationship with his brothers and with his dad and all of them have, the dad has the coat of arms, but all the boys have tattooed on them in fairly large writing, blood is thicker than water. Right? We get that, yeah? And that's powerful, isn't it? It's like a powerful thing. He's like big lads, blood is thicker than water, you know. And the idea being, and if you saw him, you'd see he's got full sleeves, both full sleeves, right across his back, they're all into weights. Gentle giants at heart, though. The idea being that the bond of blood that they share with each other is stronger and more important than the bonds they share with other people. Right? Blood is thicker than water. Do you feel the same way about our bond of blood through Jesus? I was really challenged thinking about this. We are bonded together by his blood and that blood is thicker than biological blood. And that's how the Bible teaches us to think of our relationship to the people in the church. Is this virtue present in our lives? And if we were to grow in this virtue, what might it look like for you to actually put this into practice? And finally, love. Read 1 Corinthians 13 for a description of love. But I'll say this. The list starts with faith and ends with love. And that's not insignificant. It reminds us of the way these virtues issue from faith and are moulded by love. Each virtue doesn't act in isolation from the others. We don't pick and choose. 
We take them all as springing from faith and moulded by love. Let your moral excellence be a loving excellence. Let your perseverance be a loving perseverance, not a gritted teeth perseverance. And then finally, Peter says that these things are to be growing in the Christian life. <laughs> My word. Anybody else feeling like, way, super high standards? All right, he says, if these things are yours and increasing, not just yours, yours and increasing, then the blessings are yours. Okay? That's just in case we thought, yeah, I'm doing all right. Did all right. I got six out of seven, or however many there were. Yeah, I'm feeling pretty strong. He says, if they're yours and increasing. Why? Here's why. Because the idea of neutrality is not a reality. Right? It's not a reality. But we've been totally sold that pill by, by the culture we live in. There are either religious people or there's really bad people and then there's all of us who are kind of neutral. Right? Or we spend most of our time kind of neutrally somewhere and we occasionally do like bad things and then occasionally we do good things. That's not the world that we live in. The Bible has got two paths, always two paths, and you're only ever on one of those two paths. Jesus puts it this way. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. That's it. Every decision or non-decision is a choice over other decisions. Every moment. Because everything belongs to Jesus, everything is for Jesus, and so everything is meant to be 100% of the time for his glory. And if it's not, it's out of purpose. Jesus isn't a piece of the pie. Jesus is the pie. Everything in the whole universe is aimed for Jesus. If they're yours and growing. And finally, as we come to land, well done for getting this far, we'll quickly do the benefits of growing in what I'm now going to call grace-induced, promise-powered effort at Christian virtue. First reason is that it keeps you, if this is yours growing, it keeps you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus. This is verse 8. We won't be long now. Verse 8. <clears throat> For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus. In other words, growing in virtue keeps you safe. It keeps you away from ineffectiveness and unproductivity in relation to your knowledge of Jesus. Now, what, what does this mean? I think this is like a compound factor. Uh, come and talk later if, if, if you've got another idea. I think what he's saying is growing in virtue helps you grow in knowledge of Jesus, which helps you grow in virtue which protects you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of Jesus, which helps you grow in virtue, 
which guards you from being unproductive in your knowledge of Jesus, which helps you grow in, you get the idea. Or to put another way, you grow by growing. Odd, but true. The second thing is that it protects you from stumbling. You need this in your life, Christian, to protect you from stumbling. Verse 10, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, that is, to do those things, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. You need them so that you will never stumble. Fill up your life with these things so that there's no space for other things. And the flip side of that is that heaven's gates will be wide open for you when you get there. Verse 11, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. If these virtues are yours and increasing, they keep you safe, they stop you from stumbling, and they make heaven's gates wide open when you get there. The point here is that we're on a journey as we come back to the start. We're on a pilgrimage. Our time has not yet come. And in the meantime, there are temptations and risks, and we'll hear more about them in the weeks to come, that will make you want to fall. Jesus told the parable of the four soils for a reason. Because there are four soils. And that may be you here this morning. That you need to hear, right, yes, you're right. I do need to hear this word this morning. I do need to turn to Jesus and watch out because I feel a temptation just around the corner. There are trials on the way. We need to feel the reality of this but not be overcome with fear about it. I believe Peter is still hopeful for his people. So, dear Christian, make a great, big, promise-powered effort to grow in virtue. Because if you do this, you will be safe. Let me pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. We pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would cause your word to bear fruit in our hearts. Help us, we pray. Thank you for the gifts that you've given to us in Jesus. Thank you that uh, you've given us great and precious promises. And thank you that you've given us knowledge of yourself. We ask God that uh, you would um, cause uh, your word uh, to be treasured and believed in our hearts. Uh, and to help us uh, to do these things and stay safe. In Jesus' name, amen.